Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from an American inventor and entrepreneur about a new technology for 3D printing that he says will transform the global supply chain. We were inspired by Terminator 2 and T-1000 rising from a puddle. Could the puddle underneath the part be a source of the mass for the part as we are growing it? That was the vision. And we use light in combination with oxygen. I think of this as a software-controlled chemical reaction to grow parts. That was Joseph DeSimone. He spoke to my colleague Richard Waters about how he invented a technology that can craft objects in seconds using the power of light and digital projection systems. What you do, 3D printing or additive manufacturing, is a part of what we're all talking about as the fourth industrial revolution. You know, something transformative is happening, but it seems to be happening quite slowly. So maybe we can just start there. What to you is this manufacturing revolution that's taking place in the background? What are the parts to it and what's it going to lead to? Well, the irony for me is when you look at Industry 4.0, and you look at all the technologies that people are saying are to come in in concert, automation, sensors, data, AI, none of those things have anything to do with making something. There's one part that's missing in Industry 4.0 is a digital fabrication technique that can scale with quality and cost. And so CNC machines are a digital thing. So these are machines that carve blocks of material into the kind of products we used to get in. That's right. We do polymers. And in the world of materials, these are elastomers, rubbery materials, or rigid plastics. All sorts of high-performance medical products are polymeric. Your car is increasingly polymeric. Polymers are typically made via casting or molding. And, you know, casting is 7,000 years old. The first people to mold polymers happened over 150 years ago. And it's an analog molding process. What's missing from Industry 4.0 is a digital fabrication technique that can scale with quality and cost. And we've cracked the code on how to make polymeric products digitally using light. And I think of light as our chisel. Instead of a mold, this is a moldless way of fabricating a three-dimensional object using light. So why is it important to be able to build up products like this rather than mold them? Well, molds are intrinsically limiting on design. You've got to have the symmetry to mold a product. It's got to be simple. Just think of a lattice, a mesh of struts. That's unmoldable. Or think about designs with complicated structures that your software can calculate, but they're unmakeable. And in fact, that's why we mold things often six parts that you assemble into one part because it's unmoldable geometry. And the expense of these molds or the time frame it takes to get your hands on these molds. For example, we're powering a lot of folks in the autonomous vehicle space today. And when you go from level one autonomy to level four autonomy, an increasingly robotic car, you need eight times the number of sensors to control the car. You go from two miles of wire in that car to 12 miles of wire. You need sensors, you need brackets, you need electrical connectors. You need the little doohickeys to clean the camera. When humans drive cars, you clean the windshield. When computers drive cars, you need to clean the cameras. You need fluidic devices. Every one of those products needs an injection molding tool. 
and it's not uncommon for an electrical connector for those molds to cost somewhere between a million and a million and a half dollars just to make eight at a time because of the precision of the mold in machining it out of steel. And it takes you many, many months to get your hands on those molds. And you think about every product team is slowed down or gated by getting your hands on these molds. And once you make a product in a mold, you don't want to change it because it's another six to 12 months. So this is about speed and it's about flexibility. And innovation, speed of innovation and designs that are unmoldable. We're making electrical connectors now. Electrical connectors, because of the symmetry of their mold, is a problem on the retraction forces. 90% of the warranties in cars today are electrical warranty failures, and 90% of those are due to the electrical connectors. We can mold electrical connectors that have more than twice the retraction forces, that are twice as good than conventional electrical connectors because of the designs that you can make that are unmoldable. Lattices that dissipate energy and that are breathable for helmet protection, or lattices that return energy for running shoes. So these are things that just couldn't have been built before. You couldn't make that material. You couldn't make them. You couldn't make them in a mold. And if you could, you're on a very slow pace. And we dramatically accelerate the pace of innovation. So people have talked about mass customization in manufacturing for many, many years. Is that essentially what you're talking about here, that we're talking about low runs, maybe even personalized products that can be done economically? It's certainly elements of that. But there's also elements of designs that you just couldn't make even at scale. The Adidas running shoe we're making at scale. Adidas makes hundreds of millions of shoes a year. And uh, to be able to make a consumer product like that with a design that's unmoldable really sets the stage for what it is we're doing. Now, as you say, your particular techniques here at Carbon rely on light. So you're using ultraviolet light to solidify liquid polymer and turn it into a product. I mean, it's an amazing technique to see it happen. Tell me a little bit about the background here. This is an area that you've obviously pioneered. I didn't think any other companies are using that. Is that right? That's right. We figured this out. And I'm a polymer guy by training. I was on a faculty at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for 25 years. I got into the excitement or hype everyone else did with 3D printing as, hey, this new thing to make stuff. But as soon as you saw a part from a 3D printer, you knew it didn't matter very much. It was sort of a trinket. It had lines on it. The mechanical properties differed in different directions relative to the lines. So the quality was just too low, building up a material. It was low. The materials didn't have the properties that you often want in a real part. And it was slow, really slow. So quality, material properties, and how slow it was, you knew it would never scale. And so there was a lot of frustration that's been pent up, and it needed a technological revolution to get away from those constraints, and that's what we figured out. But you've been at this for quite some years, right? So what's interesting, polymers have been at this for over 30 years. And in fact, my PhD was in the area of photolithography. So this is a technology used to make every computer chip, every integrated circuit, every memory device is made using light in manufacturing. That's patterned light in two dimensions to create the pattern that is essential for an integrated circuit. What we figured out is how to use pattern light in three dimensions to allow us to make the macroscopic products that most of us see on everyday life. As you say, the theory of some of these products has been around a very long time. What was it that made it possible? We had an idea that 3D printing is a bit of a misnomer. It's sort of 2D printing over and over and over again. And that leads to the limits in materials, it leads to the limits in properties, and it leads to limits in quality. 
And we thought, could we do this continuously? In fact, we were inspired by Terminator 2 and T-1000 rising from a puddle. From the puddle of molten metal, I remember that. That's right. And could the puddle underneath the part be a source of the mass for the part as we were growing it? That was the vision. Could we make that work? And we did. And we use light in combination with oxygen. I think of this as a software-controlled chemical reaction to grow parts. It's very digital in that sense that we just use light and light can be controlled digitally. We use oxygen, we control that, and we're crafting objects using the power of light and digital projection systems to create our parts. And I knew right away it was gonna be big because we made stuff in seconds right out of the gates. And we knew we figured out something very special. And that's when we launched the company. So you mentioned there that there are different techniques that are being used in 3D printing. And Hewlett-Packard, knowing a lot about laser printers, is using a laser printing type technique. And people are building things up out of metal and so on. How do you think this is going to work in the future? Is one technique going to basically win out? Or does it just depend on what the product is for, what materials you want to use, and what the end market is? You know, I think the 3D printing up to this point has been a prototyping technology, right? In fact, before it was called 3D printing, it was called rapid prototyping. And that's an $8 billion marketplace. Half of its metals, half of its polymers includes the materials, the products, the software. That's the industry. Injection molding is a $330 billion market. It's a very different category. And none of those prototyping technologies have had the legs to transition to full manufacturing. And you know, in metals, they mostly do it in aerospace and the volumes are really low. It's high value and it brings volume production in a market with low numbers. Polymers is the stuff that people use all the time in lots of applications. And you need to be able to transition to injection molding. And we uniquely have transitioned to that. The technologies in prototyping do not scale to manufacturing. And it was a technological breakthrough that we had that opens up additive into the polymer world for high volume manufacturing. So you're saying that the other techniques simply won't be able to scale up? I don't think so. But I think the judgment will be, what are the killer apps? And for us, we've got a litany emerging here that's really amazing. There's no other comparators. It seems that many things are being tried out here. What do you think are the first killer apps for this market? Well, look, when we decided to focus on footwear and our partnership with Adidas, we said to ourselves as a team, we said, look, if we could make footwear at the performance and cost structure that footwear is, we thought the world could be our oyster. You know, this is a large volume application. In fact, last year, our production with Adidas was already the single largest volume finished product ever made in a 3D printer at scale. We made over 100,000 pair last year. And so that's exciting, right? And that was last year. Now, in addition to that scaling, and it's really exciting to watch all the different versions of the Adidas running shoe coming, and now even some of the ocean plastics versions, Parley and the upper, and thinking about environmental stewardship, we also have examples in other consumer products, including in helmets. We had a big announcement with Riddell, and we had an NFL player on a back half of last season on every team wearing our helmets. We're replacing foam in a helmet. Foam was invented in 1937. a very limited range of mechanical properties. We now can make a lattice with a material that dampens impact and with a geometry that distributes impact for both linear impact and rotational impact and give a better product in helmets for football 
but also extends into many other sports, including bicycles, baseball, even cricket, ice hockey, all these other sports. It's a big market replacing foam. Then in January, for the first time in the history of 3D printing, the Ford Motor Company announced the first parts on a production vehicle out of Detroit. So despite all the history and excitement of 3D printing, our company was the first to put 3D printed parts on production vehicles out of Detroit. And we've got parts on the Ford Mustang, on the F-150 truck, and replacement parts on the Ford Focus. So now you think about inventory and spare parts and opening up a whole new sector with that. We have dental products. We have the world's first FDA-cleared 3D printed dentures. The making of dentures hasn't changed in over 100 years. They're typically molded, typically takes eight chair-side visits to get fitted for dentures. We now move this into the digital age. For us, you could just order a four-pack, right? It's all digital, and it's significantly better product. They fit perfectly. It's one chair-side visit. We have the first bioabsorbable material for surgical products. We have a partnership with J&J. &J. So now you can digitally print objects that are meant for internal in-the-body use that go away without a trace. So if you think about all these applications in healthcare, in consumer products, automotive products, major industrial applications, one of our companies, the Harris Corporation, makes these wonderful little antenna out of our materials that are used in 39 gigahertz millimeter wave telecommunications, 5G. So it's happening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market it over and over and we're really defining the area by what are the killer apps what's scaling at volume when you look further ahead do you think that this is a technology that will still be relatively limited to high value products with novel materials on novel structures or do you think this is going to be in everything i don't think it's limited i mean we're doing running shoes to us that's an important entry point in a large volume consumer application so i think we cover from you know, running shoes to bioabsorbable materials in surgery. And that's the gamut that we're talking about. Look, I think molding things is archaic. To do things digitally, allowing product teams to go faster, to allow product teams to make what's next now will accelerate innovation in ways that we've not seen before. Well, so we've all been hearing about additive manufacturing for a very long time. It's taking a long time to scale up. Maybe some of it is because of the particular materials and the techniques. I mean, this is difficult stuff to do. But there's another dimension to this, which is all the infrastructure and the developer skills that are needed and the new work processes and the new ways of testing materials and certifying the final products and so on. I mean, there's an entire new manufacturing industry and development industry that needs to be built on top of all of this. This is a very big project, isn't it? Yeah, that's why we're so excited. You know, we've got Ellen Coleman as my lead director, former chairman, CEO DuPont. I've got Alan Mullally, the former CEO of Ford Motor Company, former CEO of Boeing Commercial Aircraft Division. Two people that are passionate about digital manufacturing, people are passionate about materials, helping to lead the company in that direction. 
Yeah, this is a slog in some ways that as you go one application to the next application, we're heavily invested in new products, whole products, solutions. It's also the software to help with the design process. Ultimately, how do we train 100,000 engineers to design for additive? But now that we see this and we're doing it one product after another, and it's a huge flywheel that's now turning, we have as big of innovation in our business model as we have in our technology, and that's a subscription model. And to me, you think about how do you get into a new field where you had to buy hardware that was static in its performance? You can't. We've got innovations coming for the next three decades. And how do you get companies to come into that wave of opportunity and be future-proof from obsolescence? And that's a subscription model. This is the very first piece of manufacturing hardware ever brought to market via a subscription model. And I think it's one of the key tenets that allow people to come into an innovative area and actually start working on it now without fear of obsolescence. Well, let's look at some of the implications of this as it takes hold, because it really does touch on some of the big issues of the day, I suppose, in terms of what automation is going to do to jobs and even global supply chains. I mean, why don't we start with that? Even before the trade war with China, there was obviously intense interest in trying to bring production back to the US, to other developed countries. So how does this new manufacturing technique change the dynamic longer term of how things are produced and how global supply chains are organized? Oh, I think it gives you a new profound degree of freedom you never had before in how to plan, how to source. Uh, you know, it's great. You came into our lobby, you saw the global map, and you see just how many of our printers are located in Milwaukee and Cincinnati and Cleveland and Alabama and North Carolina and upstate New York and Southern California. It's really awesome to walk into the Rust Belt and other places that are actually making things digitally, really complicated projects before they were only molding. And, you know, there's a lot of injection molding shops in North Carolina. There's over 4,000 injection molding shops in North America. And they're all doing things analog. What's really great is many of them are getting our machines. We're giving them a digital complement to their analog molding business. And it's really neat to go and visit these companies. And so it allows people to be part of the digital age. And they're used to materials. And they're really well-skilled. And now we bring a complement to what their education is. Growing an install base in North America, in the United States, is very exciting for us. But what also gives you a degree of freedom to think about is your global supply chain. And that book has not been written yet. What are the implications being able to have distributed manufacturing? You know, Thomas Friedman in his book said at any given time, 2% of the world's GDP is in a UPS truck. And you think about the shipping costs. We had Jamie Dimon in here, and he's all thinking about capital tied up in inventory, billions of dollars tied up in inventory a product sitting for decades in the automotive industry, you have to have spare parts for a long time. They're often sitting in curated air-conditioned facilities around the world just waiting to be used. Now you can go to a warehouse in the cloud. There's a lot of stuff that Industry 4.0 promised us that were held back by not having a digital manufacturing technique that would scale with quality and cost. And we think we really opened that up. What does that do in terms of automation? Does this accelerate things? And if so, what's the impact on jobs? Automation and data really accelerates things. And so what's really cool about having 100% smart hardware spewing massive amounts of data to our carbon manufacturing cloud tied to every part that's traceable, having a barcode or QR code, we know exactly which data file, which printer, born on date, which lot of resin, 
every photon that went into that product has been time stamped in the cloud. And obviously that makes a lot of importance to the FDA for healthcare products because you want to know those products are safe. You want to know the provenance and history. But you know what? Ford's interested in that data too because you can get to a point where instead of recalling 300,000 cars because of a part failing, maybe you just recall 1,200. Maybe it was a bad lot of resin or, or bad design or something, right? Data in everyday parts, I think, is going to open up all sorts of new opportunities. I'm an optimist on the role that technologies have in job creation. I know there's a transformation underway as you go into this, but I'm going to point back to the injection molding shops in North Carolina and other places. I think being part of the digital complement to the analog world not only makes sense, but it's, I think it's going to accelerate new waves of growth. You know, if you said growth was also an arbiter of job creation, and innovation being a key part of that growth, being able to accelerate innovation in ways that no one's ever seen before, I think it's gonna you know, help all boats rise. I guess the other question we always wonder about when a new technology comes in and it seems to have the ability to really scale up and make an impact is who's gonna control and profit from this technology? And there's always, a, seems to be a tension between the startups like yours and the established companies that try and adopt that technology and change their own techniques. Companies like GE and Siemens that are obviously investing very heavily in this field. Are you really complementary to what GE does? And is GE the one that's going to become the digital manufacturing company of the future? Well, I'm a big fan of GE. GE is an investor. They came into our Series C for sure. They're focused on metals, and they have a deep understanding of metals in their aviation business. And so we're a massive complement to them. We're just polymers. Polymers is a big thing. As I said, hundreds of billions of dollars. We don't do metals. GE has been great at metals, and there's actually no overlap in that. And so somebody needs to crack the code on how to make metal parts as economically as we crack the code in polymers. And so I think that's still TBD in the metals world. I think in the polymer world, it's becoming increasingly clear that we're setting a new stage here. You know, I think the interesting thing is going to be the software side. You talk about Siemens and SAP, and you think about factory integration. You know, the software side of this is really going to be interesting. Our hardware is intrinsically smart, and it's spewing massive amounts of data. The way computers talk to one another is different than the way Johnson control systems talk to one another. And I think the manufacturing execution systems that operate our factories are going to undergo a transformation that we're going to be contributing to heavily. So really, it's the companies that can really understand and use software and build software platforms that are going to win this. Totally. It goes all the way from design to procurement, production, supply chain management. And then when you're going this fast, I think we're going to be rewriting the business models. How do you introduce products? What's marketing? I think we're going to change the way people market things. Because you're going to be going at a pace that the supply chains are not gating your product introductions anymore. It's a very different world. It's very exciting in that regard. So there was a book recently by Richard Deveni, I think I pronounced his name, from Dartmouth Business School. I don't know whether you saw this. Where I think like a lot of people, he got very excited about the potential here in this market. And if you extrapolate forward, his projection is this is going to be a world of platforms like many digital industries that we're going to end up with a world with... I don't know, half a dozen big manufacturing platforms that span all sectors because they can do it. Once they master the material, as you say, whether it's polymers or metals, they will apply that technology in different areas. And that we'll end up with the Google and Facebook of manufacturing, if I can put it that way. What do you think? Do we end up with global manufacturing platforms? 
I think very much you can, and I think it will. And I think there's going to be a big acceleration of these platforms that can make things. I think at the end of the day, cultural values play an important role too. You know, we compete with all the other software companies in Silicon Valley, but the best acumen in software today in those companies is trying to figure out how to get people to click on an ad or get your data. What we offer is redeeming value about how the world makes things, cost-effective healthcare, lightweight transportation, really meaningful societal benefiting products and services. So that's an important element to us, but it also allows us to realize, you know, what is important? What are the values that we have? For example, we don't have access to what they're printing. The design sit on their printer, on a computer on their printer, behind their firewall, and it can be encrypted. So we don't want access to that. We have a lot of operational data, a lot of metadata, but we think about what's important to people, what's important to this industry. And for example, we ban guns. We've ushered in a new era of material science, and we do not want to usher in a new era of security at our airports. You're pursuing something more than just clicking on ads and so on, but I mean, let's say that the economics of this particular industry lead towards platformization. You're a startup, you've raised a large amount of money, so you obviously realize it's going to take a lot to scale up. But are you going to be able to compete with a handful of global companies if it's a handful of global companies that dominate? Oh, yeah, we're excited about that. I mean, because we're going to be leading the pack. And, you know, the question is, you know, how do you stay in front of everybody? And, and that's moving fast, but it's treating people with respect and dignity and understanding, for example, you know, we've already said we have an aggregate pricing model for resins. We said we're going to hold our margins on resins, but all the cost downs due to scale up, we're going to be passing on to our customers to drive down the economics of production. We're very much interested in the should cost to allow people to proliferate. We're about growth. We're about manufacturing. And it's some of that ethos that's really important to us and our customers and the approach that we take with people. Right. And then if we compare this to cloud computing, that you're creating a global platform that people can then bring their own applications and innovations on top of, we do then get into this question of what happens on top of these platforms. If you're making it easier and cheaper for people to build anything anywhere, anytime, it's both an exciting future, but it's also a world where we wonder who's going to control this, who's going to be able to tell even what's being created. And obviously the 3D gun debate is the one that crystallizes that. It's a really challenging question, isn't it? It is. And that's where, you know, we welcome the scrutiny. We want to engage in a dialogue. And, you know, what's really interesting with a subscription model, right? We own the printer. We have terms and conditions for its legal use its ethical use. And our company has as the values embedded in our terms and conditions. We decide who we want to partner with and who we don't. And we know they're not in the business we want to be in. We don't engage them. You know, that's where with government offices and government oversight, we're going to continue these dialogues. You know, the gun debate is an important one right now. We do not think handguns made on our equipment make sense. We don't want it to happen. Our company doesn't want it to happen. Are there any other products that you wouldn't want made or industries you wouldn't be involved in? Well, you know, I think you get into things that do matter to us. We want to support law enforcement, those legal uses. And so we think about those kinds of things. You know, people have to think through about use of our products in medical. We don't want any Tom, Dick and Harry putting medical products in people. But we want to let the J&Js of the world and, you know, people that have the ability to execute products in ways that are compliant with federal law and industry standards. And so we make those kinds of choices all the time. All right. Well, Jay DiCimione, thank you very much indeed. It's been an interesting conversation. 
Yeah, thank you very much. We appreciate your interest in what we're doing. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon.